Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. It's a real honor to have our first guest today for our Memorial Day episode of this podcast. In fact, neither Dave or Brendan or I can think of anyone better to speak with us as we honor our veterans who paid the ultimate price to provide the freedoms we all enjoy today. Yari Villanueva, among many other important accolades and achievements, may be the world's foremost authority an expert on military bugle calls and the exquisite performance of taps at military funerals and memorial events. He spent 23 years in the United States Air Force Band and as the NCO in charge of the band's state funeral plans and the command post at Andrews Air Force Base, Yari oversaw the arrival and departure ceremonies for late Presidents Reagan and Ford. As a ceremonial trumpeter and bugler, Yari has participated in over 5,000 ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery. Yari was even honored with the responsibility of transporting the bugle that was played at President Kennedy's funeral from the Smithsonian to Arlington, where it is currently on display. He's a member of the Bugler's Hall of Fame. His military awards and decorations are Rolling off the page I'm looking at, I can't even name them all. His work as an educator, his work as a composer and arranger is vast. He's a Civil War historian, a reenactor, a founding director of the National Civil War Field Music School. And Yari is the bugler coordinator for TAPS Across America and TAPS for Veterans. And that's an organization dedicated to finding live buglers to perform at military funerals. Yari, we have had some amazing and knowledgeable guests on this podcast, um, and we really think we've married up for this one with you, because this is a real treat to have you here. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I really uh, feel like I'm at home, because um, field music really is what, you know, at the core of what military music is all about. And I was really honored to have been part of doing Civil War uh, field music uh, for the longest time. Wow. Very cool. Gary, we're really happy to have you on here. Can you talk about your early years with music before all the stuff happened with with TAPS and, and your military career? Where did you start? Sure. Well, um, I... Went through the Baltimore City public school system uh, in the in the 1970s, and I was fortunate to grab a scholarship to Peabody Conservatory. So I was able to study music education there with the full intent of going on to becoming a music teacher, uh, teaching in, in uh, high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools. And so after I graduated from Peabody, and, and, and by the way, that just was terrific. Um, 
place to be educated. I had a great teachers there in both uh, trumpet and um, music theory and music history. Um, I, I went on and I started teaching for a while. Then I dropped out of teaching to uh, get my master's degree at Kent State University in Ohio. Uh, finishing that degree, I came back to Baltimore and um, decided to audition for the uh, bands. There were all these openings at the same time. There was an opening in the Navy Band, uh, the Marine Band, and the Air Force Band. So I took all the auditions, and everybody turned me down. <laughs> so um, I took a teaching job in the fall of 1984, uh, and um, two months into my teaching, the Air Force called and said, you were number two in the auditions and we number one can't make it. So if you're interested, we'd love to have you. So I went back and auditioned for the Air Force um, and then entered in July of 1985. Um, spent 23 years with the ceremonial brass. One of the greatest things about doing that is, is that it afforded me so many opportunities, a chance to pursue arranging writing music for the ceremonial brass, music to be performed in Arlington National Cemetery, music that we did on concerts. There was a chance for me actually to be in front of the band as a drum major. Uh, for a while, I actually left the band. For about a year and a half, I went over to music production and worked in the library as a staff arranger and also as a music copyist. But I got really lonely for the cemetery and uh, went back into the ceremonial brass to finish out my career. Um, after I um, after I retired from the uh, Air Force Band, I went and worked for the state of Maryland for about 10 years, working as the director of the Maryland National Guard Honor Guard, overseeing military funerals for the state of Maryland, and also uh, serving in the state militia, which is the Maryland Defense Force, organizing a band, and a pretty good band, actually, at that, and uh, having a great time, and then finally retired from the state and also from the state militia. Um, I owe a lot to people along the way, great teachers who I had in high school, um, great teachers, uh, Peabody, great mentors who I met along the way. My greatest mentor was a fellow by the name of Bill Holcomb. And Bill Holcomb is a world-renowned arranger and composer who lived in West Trenton, New Jersey. His arrangements are played by all the major symphony orchestras around the world. Um, he had a publishing company, and I, I, I was able to meet him and, and, and make friends with him and, be, and actually became part of his family. Um, it was amazing. I, they, he regarded me as his uh, an extra son, and I had some great times with him. He passed away about 10 years ago, and I really miss him. But he really helped um, put me in the right direction on, on arranging techniques and also a lot of musicality things, too. So I owe a lot to uh, great teachers and mentors, uh, great people who I worked for in the Air Force Band, uh, the chiefs I worked for, officers I worked for. Um, I also had the great opportunity while I was in the Air Force, not only to work the musical aspect of it, but also to work protocol. I worked a lot with the Honor Guard, um, the, Air, the United States Air Force Honor Guard, and even worked with the uh, Air Force Chaplaincy at Arlington National Cemetery, 
uh, serving as a chaplain's assistant um, and also the es- an, an Arlington ladies escort for a lot of funerals. So uh, got a, a chance to do everything. By the time I finished, I kind of laughed and said, you know, I've done everything in Arlington except the gra- uh, dig the graves there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to lead the band. I got to write the music for the band. I got to, you know, um, escort the Arlington ladies and stuff. It, like I said, a great, great, um, um, uh, great career. And I, I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world.
So Yari, we, uh, you and I, I, I've known you since I must have been what thirteen or fourteen when we started started playing together um, way back when in some of the Civil War reenacting stuff. Um, and then uh, you were still active duty with the Air Force Band um, while I was in the Old Guard. So we were right around the corner from each other, oftentimes on the same post. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the um, <clears throat> the different music that, like the the Civil War music and some of the the historic stuff? Did that come from the Air Force Band, or or was it more influence traveling the other way? The the interest in historic stuff influencing your your military career, or the other way around? Wow, that's a great question, and I got to tell you. Uh, when we first when we first met, and uh, you of course were a student of Don Hubbard's, and uh, I actually can recall a time when you were shorter than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't happen. I see. Yeah, that, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I think. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's it's interesting. Um, my love of Civil War goes back to when I was, you know, in junior high school. You know, I, I read a lot of books on Civil War. And and then when I, you know, got into music, I, I I knew about the musical aspect of it, but I really never got involved with it. Then when I got into the Air Force and I was involved with the military, and I, I started becoming more interested in Civil War. And in fact, someone had asked me one time and said, wait a minute, you, you were interested, but you've never like gone out and done a Civil War event? And I I to know. And so about 1995 or 1996, you know, I went on the internet and I looked up some units and stuff and uh, found one of my, to my liking. And actually it was the, um, the third United States infantry uh, at the time. Uh, they, um, the third, the third U S of course has been around, uh, for, you know, it's the second oldest uh, regiment in the, in the um, army. And, of course, they were prominent during the Civil War. So I looked up one of the um, units and, and found a group and started reenacting with them. And I actually started reenacting just as a bugler. you know. So I would go and sound calls for, for, for the unit and stuff. I really wasn't interested in learning any of the, the rifles and stuff and, and doing that. I really wanted to concentrate on the musical part of it and learning about how, you know, the calls were used and how field music played a role in uh, the war at that time. And by doing that and doing it firsthand and actually going out on the battlefield next to an officer and, and working with them and, and experiencing sounding a call and seeing how the people would maneuver to it, it, it really gave me an understanding of of how field music was used during that time. And this, of course, led into my interest, of course, to other things like World War One and then World War Two. how bugling and field music was, was used during those times. And then, of course, how it became used in um, modern day, the military today. Uh, for example, there are protocols that are still used uh, by the military bands today. When we do a funeral at Arlington, the tradition of having, you know, the casket come out accompanied by music carried by enlisted personnel, it are, that's a tradition that goes back to the Civil War. 
the firing of three volleys at a gravesite is something that actually goes prior to the Civil War and, and actually f- has its roots in Greek and Roman um, times um, of the, the idea of having shouting a person's name three times over the grave. Um, and that morphs into the, the three volleys that we know today. The, the idea of having music on a procession is something that dates back to the medieval times. So all, you know, what we do in Arlington and what, what they do in Arlington today is steeped in, in those traditions that, that stretch back centuries. So what we do, what they do today, um, in the military really is just a continuation of, of, of things that we've done, you know, way back during the Civil War. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, it, and it's fascinating that so much history has been pulled from, you know, a, a thousand years ago that that is is happening now. Um, so where does TAPS fall into that? What is the what is the origin of TAPS and uh, and and how is it how is it manifested today and, and how does it need to be maybe improved or maybe not improved? Well, you know, I could speak for two hours on that subject. I know. I know. Um, and uh, basically, you know, I'll give you the condensed version. And by the way, and since I'm talking to a lot of drummers, you'll be interested to know that it has sort of its you know, roots in drum beats. Um, first of all, um, there there was really no call used at a military funeral. You know, basically military funerals would consist of uh, the firing of three volleys, the placement of the, the, the coffin in the, in the grave. But there wasn't really any kind of bugle call associated with that. Um, the, the way TAPS comes about is that there was always the call at the end of the evening. There's actually two calls. Uh, in the in the evening, the first one is the call of tattoo, which is either sounded on a bugle, played by fifes and, and drums, and that is the call basically that is to bring the soldiers back for the last roll call of the day. Now I know that fife and drums, they there's when they do their tattoo, they when they do the three camps. There's a big, you know, they do a lot of playing involved with that. And that's, it's sort of a, you know, the evening concert, which actually morphs into the tattoo shows that we have today. That's all rooted in that little concert in the evening that the fife and drums do. But the the call of tattoo, um, like I said, signifies the soldiers returning to the garrison for the final roll call of the day. Then in the about an hour after that, there is the call of extinguished lights, um, which was usually sounded on a bugle. And in the Civil War, following that bugle call of extinguished lights, there would be three distinct taps on a drum. And that would be called the drum taps or short than just taps. And of course, there's a book called Drum Taps and Dixie, um, which the title of that book refers to that last beating of the drum in the evening. And also Walt Whitman actually wrote uh, a poem called, you know, Drum Taps or, or a book. Um, 
and and, and he and that's referring to the, those three distinct taps. Now, when in 1862, General Daniel Butterfield um, decides he's not very happy with the regulation call of tattoo, which like all the rest of the bugle calls in the infantry at the time are derived from French bugle calls. The United States really never had its own set of bugle calls. We always seem to borrow. Uh, back at the Revolutionary War, we borrowed bugle calls from the English. Uh, then uh, when we got sort of mad at them, we picked up French calls. Uh, and then uh, it was not until like 1870 that we developed our own calls. But during the Civil War, all the infantry bugle calls are French-based. Um, so the call for extinguished lights, and if you want to find my recording of it, you can play it right now. <laughs> You'll notice that it sounds a lot like today's modern tattoo. Okay, mm -hmm. that's so it, it, it you know it, after the war it serves that purpose, but the call itself dates from the from 1809 and was written by a, a Frenchman, and it, it's interesting that um, it was Napoleon's favorite bugle call. So anyway, it's a call that is a very martial sounding piece of music. Daniel Butterfield, who was the uh, a brigade commander, he he commanded the third brigade, third brigade, first division, fifth army corps, um, and this brigade, by the way, would go on to great fame a little bit later in the war um, on Little Round Top as being able. To, that's the brigade that held off um, the Confederates on Little Round Top when it was then commanded right. by uh, Chamberlain. But back yes. in 1862, it was under the command of Daniel Butterfield. Um, and Butterfield's a, a very interesting character. I'll just mention the fact that he was a son of a prominent businessman from Utica, uh, New York. Um, he had studied um, in Schenectady at Union College and then went was sent uh, off west to you know sow his wild oats as it were. Then came back uh, to New York and enlisted in the Twelfth New York Militia. He rose to the rank of colonel, and then through his political connections and also because of daddy, um, he was able to get you know become a brigadier general and given the command of this brigade. So. It's it's now July of 1862. They're down at um, along the river, along the James River uh, in Virginia, just finishing up the seven days battle. And Daniel Butterfield decides he's going to change the call of extinguished lights and he's going to use a new call. And so he summons his 23 year old bugler, a fellow by the name of Oliver Wilcox Norton. Um, to his tent, and they rework basically an old bugle call that had gone out of practice prior to the Civil War. And they work that call into the 24 notes that we know today 
as taps. So the, now it's not called taps at the beginning. It's called extinguished lights because that's what its purpose was to p- be played at the end of the evening to signify, turn out the lights, go to sleep. However, because it was replacing the three drum taps, soldiers started calling it taps. Mm. So that's how we get the name. Now, interestingly enough, um, it becomes popular and, and widespread in use. And by the end of the Civil War, it's even used at military funerals um, uh, at, at following the, the three volleys. Um, after the Civil War, TAPS is used at memorial services. It's used at funerals. It becomes more and more of an accepted thing. However, it takes the Army almost 30 years to actually recognize that fact. In, in 1874, when they revise the bugle calls and get rid of the French calls, they keep the music for taps, but they call, they call it extinguished lights. They don't call it taps. They call it extinguished lights. And there is no reference as to what it's used for except for playing in the evening at the, to turn out the lights. But it's used unofficially for funerals. Finally, in 1891, the Army gets around to writing the regulation in its 1891 manual stating that the call will be sounded after three volleys are fired at a graveside and they finally get around to calling it taps. So that's basically the story how taps has come about and it's been used at military funerals ever since. And it's been used at memorial services. Now recently, and I'd say within the past two or three decades, the call has sort of morphed. It's sort of transcended its original purpose. While it was originally, you know, used strictly for military, you know, funerals, well, in the 30s and 40s, people started playing it like it's summer camps. Yeah. Um, the Boy Scouts picked it up. The Girl Scouts actually would end their meetings by singing the words to taps. Um, uh, an interlock in music school, um, they actually play taps every night. Um, uh, during the summer, and they have, they still to this day, what I'm told, they still have a bugler who sounds the calls. It was a very big thing in the 30s and 40s. So it's it's become more and more of a, a use by civilians. And then it started to be used at funerals for police officers, firefighters, and other first responders. And then uh, um, after 9-11, it started to be used for in memory of those people who were who were killed. And then, of course, in the past uh, year and a half or so, well, past year and several months, there have been buglers who've been sounding the call in honor of those people who've died uh, due to COVID. Um, there are some buglers who play every single night uh, out on the you know their doorsteps and stuff, and it's, just, it's a, kind of a nice thing to do. So it's become more and more of an American call. Which is, which is a really great thing because at the heart of it, taps is a piece of music. And like a piece of music, music is the art of conveying an emotion from one person to another person. And it has the ability to evoke you know, powerful emotional responses from, from us all. And taps 
really helps you know bring us together as Americans because it unify it unifies us through the musical notes and and one great thing about it is that you know it's it's what's been happening this past year is people not or people sounding it in their neighborhoods you know people are sounding it on their back porch and stuff and and you know it's it's really helping bring neighborhoods together um so it's it's that's kind of a great thing but at, you know at the heart of it though we still have to remember that taps is a military call and it's supposed to be played for military you know veterans at funerals and memorial services for them and it's still of course used as the final call of the day at every united states military base around the world nice so I, I was hired a few years ago to play muffled drum at a military funeral, and I don't, I can't remember if it was the Air Force or the Navy, but it was not the Army or the Marines. Um, but I was astonished to see this contraption pulled out uh, by somebody that was in a uniform. It looked like a bugle, but it had an amplifier that played a recording of taps. Now I have my own thoughts and opinions on that. I'd love to hear yours. Okay. What you're referring to, of course, is the ceremonial bugle. That's the official name of it. I call it the digital bugle. <laughs> uh, and it it's actually has been around since uh, for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after the turn of the uh, century, um, there was an, an outcry uh, among uh, the popular about among people and people complaining up to the military that um, there weren't enough buglers, uh, live buglers, and the military was resorting to cassette recordings and the CD players. So this one company came up with the idea of having a recording, but and, and their idea was okay, it's going to be recording. But it's going to have the visual of a, a person holding this instrument uh, uh, from which a recording comes out. And it, in, in October of 2002, it was tested for six months in the state of Missouri. Um, and they got feedback from you know the people who attended the funeral, from the military. And it was all like positive reviews that this is so much better than, you know, the, the cassette or the CD. So the, the Pentagon gave their stamp of approval on it. Um, so the, the military started using this. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the company that is probably not well known. Um, the, the company that came up with this, and I'm, and I'm not, Speaking out of hand because this is it's very easy to find out. Um, I'm just speaking the truth here. Okay, the company is called SND Consulting Ltd. Uh, it's run by a British guy. Um, the company itself has an address in New York City, but when you Google the address, it comes back to a UPS store. Basically, so it's just a, a drop-off point. The instrument itself is the brass part of it is basically made in India or Pakistan. The insert is an electronic device that's probably made in China. So mm-hmm. it's assembled out out of the country and then shipped to this store in U, the, the UPS store and then shipped throughout the United States. I'm, I always wonder. 
if if the military, who is always really big on using American-made stuff and, and the VSOs that use this, how would they feel if they knew that every single penny they have uh, spent on this ceremonial instrument doesn't go anywhere to the United States. It goes completely out of the country. So anyway, it's, it's, it's used quite a bit now. I personally, and this is my feeling, I have no problem with that. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe what he just said. Here's the issue. When there is absolutely no one available to sound taps, that's it's 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 a good alternative um, if you can't get anyone at all. It's it's better than a cassette or, or or a boom box or anything like that. But here in here lies the problem um, because it's been used quite a lot by these VSOs and by military units. They have decided a lot to stop calling live buglers, and instead, they'd rather just use the the machine. It, it's too much of a bother for them to try and track down a live bugler. It's, it's easy. Every, almost every um, honor guard unit in the country has a set or two of these bugles, so you can imagine how many were sold. Um, uh, when I was the director of the Maryland National Guard Honor Guard, I will tell you, I think we had probably like 50 of them um, in stock uh, because we, we it, I insisted that we would always carry two of them in each vehicle. Um, and then each unit that we had, we had four units spread around, had always a stockpile of them just in case. Um, one of the biggest concerns with the instrument itself, or with the contraption, is that they break down. Um, every time I go out and do a funeral and I see this, I'll go talk to an honor guard and I'll ask them, tell me your digital bugle story. And they'll usually start laughing and they'll tell me the time when it stopped playing halfway through or the <laughs> insert fell out or something like that. But they always... Everybody without fail has a story. Now, like I said, they they will use this instead of going to get a live player. And one of the issues I have found, and I work with a lot of funeral directors, and I asked about this. One of the sneaky things uh, the military has done was when a funeral director calls the military to ask for a live bugler, the military or the VSO will say, yes, we have a live bugler. And so the, the, the guy, the funeral director goes back to the family and says, we're set, they have a live bugler. And the families are relieved. When they get to the funeral, it is a live person. There's no doubt about it. He's a live person, but he's playing the digital bugle. <laughs> and so that's a little sneaky, I think, on the on the on the hands of the military, the VSOs. Now, I feel really bad for funeral directors because they're always caught in the middle. They're the ones that have to deal with the families and, and tell them um, that, hey, you know, we can't get a bugler or we can't get a firing party or we or a lot of times we can't get an honor guard. And it's it's a very difficult position for them. Um, and it's a it's a tough job. So one of the ways that 
of course, we're trying to help the situation is by promoting live playing, of course. And that's why I'm always big on bugling. And, you know, people laugh at me, you know, oh, that guy, he's the bugler guy and stuff. But it's it's important. You know, we want to keep it, you know, front and center. And, and we try to promote it through these live events that we do, like the TAPS Across America, and also through the organization TAPS for Veterans, where we actually try and fill requests for live buglers as much as we can. Now, for a military procession, does it have to be a military uh, person that plays the bugle? No, actually not. Uh, by the, the DOD directive, which is like one three zero zero point one five. I forget the exact number. Um, it, it it can be civilian, or it can be it says it can be military or contracted. Hmm. So it can be. In other words, it can be a civilian. I've had that question before. It can be a civilian to 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 play it. Because I, I grew up in this town uh, in in Connecticut, and the mayor was his name was Frank De Castro. He was the mayor. He would he, I guess he also uh, plowed in the winter time, but he also was a bugler. He played in a jazz band, and he would do all the the, the funerals that that called for taps in town. I always thought that was pretty interesting. So you're you're involved with with a bunch of different t- charities. Uh, taps for Veterans um, is one that I definitely want to hear um, more about. But uh, a lot of these charities are devoted to historic music, uh, you know, veterans themselves, historic preservation. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of that work? Sure, I will. And just one second, I just, uh, you know, talking about the the mayor who did all the bugling is great. One of the big reasons, too, that there's been a decline in bugling is that uh, American Legion and VFW used to sponsor drum and bugle corps big time. But that went away, and of course, th- that unfortunately led to uh, fewer buglers being oh. able to be available. But as as far as the things that I, I do now, oh my goodness, um, the Taps for Veterans um, is you know that's an organization, like I said, devoted to trying to you know line up families with you know qualified buglers. The Taps Across America. Uh, is a once a year thing that we play. There'll be thousands, by the way, there'll be thousands of uh, participants at three o'clock on Memorial Day all over the country um, sounding the call. And interestingly enough, not only trumpeters and buglers and cornet players, but we've got everyone on different instruments. Everybody wants to honor, you know, by playing an instrument, you know. So we have flute players, clarinet players, trombone players, and, and and for this thing, for this one time, I'm saying that's it's fine because people want to honor those who made the sacrifice. And I, and I think it's appropriate. Um, so the, that, you know, we, we were very fortunate to hook up with CBS News. In fact, I'm doing my interview with uh, CBS News this coming Tuesday. So it will air on Friday just before Memorial Day. And then on Sunday before Memorial Day on the Sunday morning program with uh, Steve Hartman on the road. Um, We're very fortunate to work with him. We've partnered up with some other great folks around the country. For example, Fleet Farm Stores in the Midwest uh, is sponsoring us. Um, uh, Five Mo Alpha Sinfonia, uh, the music fraternity is also uh, working with us. The great folks we have. Um, other Sinfonia. 
you, are you a brother? I am. Yeah. I don't awesome. know. If, I don't know if I'm in good standing anymore, but yeah. <laughs> no, you, ne- you, you never lose. You never lose the standing. The, well, that's that's great, brother. Uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> we have a lot of them out there. By the way, you know, it's just just off a little thing. My my uh, chapter is so old. My chapter is so old. My chapter is so old. How how old is it? <laughs> we only have one letter, Kappa. <laughs> Which is true. Oh, we're, my Lord. we're one of the first ones. <laughs> hey, so, so, so let me ask you a question. And, and sure. it's kind of rolling back to uh, the, the really simple parts about taps, you know, because I'm a drummer and you had mentioned that there are 24 notes in taps. Yeah. Is that what you said? And so, yeah. and, and, and after you said that, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm kind of simple about this stuff and I have to count it out. So I counted out. Three, you know, eight different segments of three notes, which gave us the 24 notes. And that's all there is to taps. That's it. So what are the words? Are they are they as simple as the notes? Because I don't even know what the words are to taps. Well, it's interesting. Um, there were no real words at the beginning. Oliver Wilcox Norton, the first bugler ever to sound the call, actually writes in his book, um, that as he was playing, uh, the soldiers would sing, you know, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go, to, you know, not really yeah. creative, you know, go to sleep, put out the lights, go to sleep. Well, because the call became so popular and because putting words to bugle calls wasn't something new, um, words were becoming associated with the call. The most popular one is the day is done, which is day is done. Gone the sun, from the lake, from the hills, from the sky, all is well, safely rest, God is nigh. Mm. No one knows who wrote that. There are several people who claim authorship, but I've, in all my research, I've not been able to find out exactly who wrote it. Um, Pennsylvania Military College actually claimed um, ownership of it, and they actually copyrighted it. Um, Pennsylvania, but- Dave. <laughs> Oh, Dave, Dave's from Pennsylvania. He doesn't believe me, but he's... <laughs> okay. Well, the Pennsylvania Military College is, is now Widener University, um, and they still hold the copyright on it. In fact, the Girl Scouts have to apply for permission every year uh, to use it, but but they because they say one of their graduates back in 1880-something uh, wrote it, but I, I've not found proof on it. Uh, in my research. Anyway, there's been many, 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 many sets of words that have been put to it, but they're all, you know, unofficial words. Uh, Keith Clark, the trumpeter who sounded taps at John F. Kennedy's funeral, in a letter to me, uh, said that he thinks uh, when he plays, when he played back then, he was a Christian. So he always used the words, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Christ is Lord, Jesus mm-hmm. saves. Yeah. So, you know, it, it it all depends on you know on, on the person, um, what words they like to to, to use. But it's it, you know it's really interesting how that has evolved, and that's one of the reasons why we call it a song because it, you know it does have these words to it. Right. So I, I'm going to ask uh, one of Brian's questions here. Um, uh, 
I'm going to loop it into to one of mine as well. So um, we've already talked about some of the events that 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 um, you've been working on. Um, there's a lot of fife and drum events as well. Um, so for historic musical events, what do you guys have have coming up? Um, what do you have in relation to this? And what can people do to to help with some of these these charities and some of these projects? Oh well, thank you, thank you for asking. Well, of course, the um, the, the 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 Civil War Field Music School that happens once a year. Um, uh, Don Jimenez, oh, boy, did I pronounce his name wrong? <laughs> I think no, I think you were good. I think that's right. <laughs> Don, Don is such a great guy. He's a great um, guy. He took up the mantle uh, from me um, after I took it up from Don Hubbard um, because that school dates all the way back to the Eastern um, Music Fest, uh, Music Field Music School, way back when when Don founded it. Um, so, if if people want to help and support that organization, uh, it, I think that's a great thing as far as fife and drums go. Um, I've been thinking about trying to do like a little offshoot uh, with bugling on it uh, from from that too. Uh, but I've got to talk to Don and see what plans are. Of course, we had to cancel last year because of the COVID. Um, the people, if if they're interested in supporting what I do, you know, they can make contributions to Taps for Veterans. And we have a website, tapsforveterans.org, and you can um, uh, you know, make a donation on the website. I also have a, a website tapsbugler.com which is visited um, I get about 600 hits every single day on my on that website people who come to look for information about taps protocol questions uh, and the things that of course that I'm interested in I'm always putting up different articles about about this and that um, the other things that we're doing that are of, of note, uh, of course, the 100 Nights of Taps, Gettysburg, that's a program uh, where we have a bugler who sounds taps every night starting on Memorial Day uh, through September 11th. Wow. Uh, and, and it's not the same bugler. We have a different bugler every single evening so that's like we call it 100 nights it's not quite 100 i think it's like 98 or 97 or something who's but counting who's counting you know 100 sounds so good but <laughs> uh, it's a great program wendy allen is the founder of that program she runs an art studio in gettysburg that's dedicated to the artwork of abraham lincoln and she got the idea of doing this taps every single night after she visited Belgium, um, uh, Epers, Epers, uh, uh, Belgium, where they have that memorial. Uh, and they have last post that sounded there every evening at eight o'clock. And they've been doing it since 1920 something, uh, without fail. So her idea was to do something like this on a smaller scale in in uh, Gettysburg, and it's quite popular. We have a couple hundred people every single night who come and listen to the taps. Um, on Monday, the twenty fourth of May, we're starting a program at the World War One uh, uh, Memorial in Washington D.C. The brand new World War One Memorial, uh, where we're going to have taps every single day at five p.m. And that's going to go on. The initial program is for for twenty five weeks. 
So that'll take us to the end of uh, Veterans Day. So that's that's another program that I'm involved with. And that's being run by the Doughboy Foundation. So if, if anyone's interested in helping sponsor that, they can go online to the Doughboy Foundation. I believe it's like doughboyfoundation.org and read about what we're doing and make a contribution there it's a, it's can you imagine every every day a bugler sounding taps it's gonna That's it's great. awesome That's great. and then the big event this year uh for me will be at arlington national cemetery uh 2021 marks the centennial of the tomb of the unknown soldier mm. and it is a, a really big thing for the the sentinels, the guards there. Um, I'm an associate member of the uh, Society of the Sentinel Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, um, that organization, which is made up of all former uh, guardsmen, and they are a wonderful group of people. I've been working with them. They are planning a lot of ceremonies involving the centennial. And of course, from the musical end, um, I'm doing programs related to taps at the tomb. Um, we're going to be highlighting the three buglers who sounded taps for the big ceremonies. The first one in 1921, the World War II in Korean in 1958, and then the Vietnam in 1984. Uh, those three buglers are all buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So on November 7th of this year, we're going to have a ceremony at the old amphitheater where we're going to honor those buglers, honor the the the, the, the guards, the the tomb guards, and also honor the buglers who sound taps at the tomb. Uh, we'll do a special program there. Then we're going to go lay wreaths at the graves of those buglers, uh, and then over to the back to the um, amphitheater where we, uh, there'll be a wreath laying at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and the wreath will be laid by the granddaughter of the bugler who first sounded taps in 1921. So wow. Wow. pretty excited about that. But, cool, but that costs money. <laughs> so right. uh, if anyone's interested, we're, it's being run by Taps for Veterans. So if you're interested in helping support that, that's a great thing. And of course, we, the important thing is honoring the unknown soldier, but it's also to try and make that awareness about the live bugling. It's, it's so important because you will never, ever find the digital machine used at Arlington National Cemetery. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Yari. Thank you so much for oh. taking some time to, to, to chat with us. I'm sure we could probably go on for another several hours at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You, you probably found that once you wind me up, I just keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing. Great. Very really, really great. Very fascinating. And well, thank you for everything you do, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you. It's 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 much appreciate much appreciated. And thank you for what you guys do because you're keeping alive a very important tradition, and cool. you know that's it's wonderful. Yeah, we try to. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're not sure what we do actually. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Yari. Okay. Thanks, guys. So. 
Our next guest is huge in the fife and drum community. Mark Logston has helped our community survive and thrive for decades. Mark began his professional music career 60 years ago. He's worked on movie soundtracks, commercials, various recording projects. He's been the director of the renowned First Michigan Colonial Fife and Drum Corps since he founded the group in 1974 with his wife, Mary. He has spent years as an instructor and his students have played with every major Michigan University marching band, the United States Army Old Guard, Fife and Drum Corps, and more university music programs than we can even mention right now. Mark is currently the first vice president of the company of Fifers and Drummers, and has even been the drum major instructor for the company in Fifers and Drummers camp. Mark Logston is a very important part of American Fife and Drum, and we are so happy to have you here for a chat. Thank you, Mark. Glad uh, you're thank here. Thank you. Great to By see you. By the way, I was I was reelected as second vice president. Boom. Um, uh, we switched around. Yep. So what we does that mean? We switched around uh, for, for logical reasons. Does well, that mean that you, you have to work harder or less? <laughs> well, this, this took place after Big John passed away. And as first vice president, that put me in, in, uh, in line for the presidency. And that, that put, uh, uh, the second vice president, who has boots on the ground out there, right? Uh, you know, so I, I literally wrote a letter at, 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 at saying is, as such that I would defer to the second vice president because it was was unfair of the company for me to take over from 800 miles away. Right. I mean, my ego doesn't have to be president. It just it needs to see the company flourish. It needs to see the company step forward continuously. So I have no problem with that. I'm happy to be welcomed uh, in the company. Yeah. So, so Mark, I'm, I'm uh, for all the years that that I've known you, um, I'm kind of surprised that I, I don't actually know some of these stories. But um, can you tell us a little bit about your introduction to fife and drum and some of your, <laughs> your early years, how you got into this this mayhem? <laughs> you know, living out here. Living out here, as a 12-year-old kid, I saw a movie with uh, uh, a young kid who uh, he quit his military school, uh, grabbed his drum, quit his military school, went and joined the Army. Uh, so here I am as a 12-year-old kid watching this this, uh, this this field. And holy cow, I, I've been drumming since I'm seven years old. And sound out of my, I could and nobody, and nobody knew what I was good. Nobody. And then years later, in fact, twelve years later, uh, I'm at work, sitting around the office on break, and this "What do you want to do when you were a kid?" came out, you know. And everybody sitting in the office, they're telling their stories. And I said, "Well, I'll, I'll tell you, but nobody's going to know what I'm talking about." I said, "I wanted to be in a fight and drum course. And the and the guy sitting next to me. I've been working with him for three years. He goes, I know what that is. Here, I'll bring pictures in tomorrow. Um, holy cow. So that was uh, in probably August of 70, 
June of 74. And in November, I had made appointments with John Moon and Bill White, senior. Um, Billy White was a little guy. And uh, my wife and I went down with friends of ours to Williamsburg and spent, spent uh, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend, one of their busiest weekends. And I followed, I followed John and, and Bill around like uh, their, their, their puppy. I was filling notebooks with, you know, notes. And I said to them when I left, uh, I had been given a lot of names to contact uh, as far as fifes and drums and all this. And I said, this was in November, Thanksgiving, November 74. And I said, I'll have one on the street. And, and they both said, well, you know, it takes about two years. I said, I'll do it in less. And we played our first performance August 23rd of 1975.
Well, that's a tough. We one. knew. <laughs> we knew five songs, but we played them. That's all you need, right? Uh, yeah. Well, sure. But we just, and that's how we got started. It was a kickstart. And I have to, and to this day, part of the fabric, part of the history of that core, of this core is how well the Westbrook Junior Colonials treated our kids at the time. They were out at Greenfield Village. We were hired by Greenfield Village. I mean, this is a big deal. And I told the guy there, I said, we only know five songs. He said, I don't care. He says, I like the way you look. I like the way you talk about this. And he says, we're in. And we've had a literally a 47, 48 year, um, wonderful working history together. The Greek what, what, what year was that, Mark? Do you remember? Yeah, I can tell you. It was 1975 was the first. I was there. I was with the junior colonials. Judy. Judy Barrows was the drummer. Yes, and I was I was a bass drummer with that core, and I was out there in Michigan for that. Well, I'll tell you, it that still to this, I mean, it, it always it always warmed my heart to see that what I thought was going to happen would happen. I, you know, I had earlier on I had uh, uh, auditioned for a drum and bugle corps out here, and I made the audition. And then after the audition was over and I was applauded and, you know, the directors of this corps were, were uh, in Detroit, you know, making these auditions. And then I was taken over to a table with scrapbooks. And the guy says, look through these scrapbooks. And which I did. And I, they were all cool. They were uniforms, you know, drums. And, uh, and the guy comes over and he goes, these, this scrapbook is us. That scrapbook is everybody we compete against. And if we ever see you talking to anybody in those uniforms, you're done. Whoa. Wow. Wow. And so my dad, <laughs> my dad picks me up. He says, well, I said, I made it, dad. He says, Great. When do practices start? I said, I quit, dad. <laughs> and the, fife and, the fife and drum community, I have to say, uh, specifically, the, the company of fifers and drummers um, got rid of that in a heartbeat, and the and the face of the company at that time were the Westbrook Junior Colonials, without question. So they, they they've always yeah they've always been a a warm place in my heart for those folks. Hey, so so being a, a core director for so long, what can you tell us about some of the challenges that that one might face with the semi quincentennial coming up in a few years in twenty twenty six? What would somebody be facing in trying to start a drum corps? What are some of those challenges? Well, just well, one having the dedication to continue on in the face of unbelievable adversity. Uh, we don't have money for that. We don't have money for this. We don't have time for that. No, you. We can't. We, out here, it was every place I talked to about about a fife and drum corps. All they ever heard me say was drum and bugle corps, drum and bugle corps, drum. And I, I would go. I would spend long minutes of my time slot at various meetings. The fife and drum corps, fife and drum corps, and they heard drum and bugle corps. So the, the adversity is. As I see it, would be for anybody. I don't care if, wow, I don't care if it would be 
a new core in Chester, uh, Connecticut, or a new core in the next suburb over from me in Troy, Michigan, it would still be, uh, to my mind, getting people to understand what it is you need to happen and, and how to get it done. I mean, out there, it seems like it's a no-brainer. But I right. bet there's still <laughs> there's still issues when you say, here's what I need to do, you know? Right, out, right. Out here, it was wild. It was wild. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I mean, you, you do still deal with that and having conversations with you, the, the East Coast versus the Midwest and, you know, the being able to connect the two ideas together. Um, I, I can imagine that being a very difficult time when, when you're first starting in that area, kind of sowing the way. Well, I, uh, when we started in 74, there was four years, at that, three years at that point, I think. Um, the only other cores that existed then was Tippecanoe hmm. out in the Midwest. Now there are uh, five, six, six cores in Michigan. Um, and Lafayette, Indiana has four cores alone. Tippecanoe, the Voyagers, the 42nd, which has fifes and drums as well as bagpipes. And then the Lafayette Junior Fife and Drum Corps. So there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot bigger today than it was in 74. Right, right. So, uh, so, so Mark, looking beyond just the, you know, the core standpoint, and you've been involved with the company for uh, so many years, where do you see the, the company um, and what do you think they need to do to grow, adapt, uh, evolve with, you know, the stuff that's going on today in Fife and Drum? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think the company needs to get its members to um, be consistent in their support. And that means physically as well as monetarily. Uh, and that isn't happening. Most of the most of the support that comes to the company now financially comes from outside the Connecticut Valley. And that, and that is uh, the exact opposite uh, that what, what it used to be. You know, when I first joined the company, I was 25. Core had been together for mere months when I joined the, when I joined the, uh, Company of Fifers and Drummers. Yep. And at first, and it was a good old boys club, man. You know, I would, when I came out there periodically to visit my friends, the Coopermans and, uh, and so forth, I was, uh, I'd go to a meeting and uh, uh, I would make suggestions because I am 800 miles away as the others are. Um, and it was, back then it was <laughs> total ignore Logsdon over there. <laughs> and, I, and, and it was like that for, for, for a while. It was. But it, the company is, is, I believe, I strongly believe this. The company is the place to be sure that we as musicians are not lost in antiquity, that we, mm -hmm. our memories uh, survive, the music survives 
the cores that in present and playing, their memories survive. Virtually everything, uh, you know, maybe someday somebody's going to do a reenactment of what the Connecticut blues were like, mm. you know, back in the day. I wonder if there will ever be a Yankee Toonsmith, you know, kind of thing. That's an interesting thought. I've never even thought of that before. I think it's important. I really do. And the company's the company's the venue to do it. I'm convinced. Well, you know, so so something interesting about that is is that uh, I think for the first time, um, you know, in history, there are going to be so many recordings of of what things were like here. So there aren't going to be like the same questions. Uh, We we just interviewed Yuri Villanueva. Um, about some stuff during the Civil War, and there there aren't YouTube videos of that stuff. You know, research is 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 really um, much easier to do in a way, but also lacking in other ways. So that actually leads into a question: um, Do you think that technology has helped or hindered the survival and progr- and progress of fife and drum? Wow, technology has the ability to actually. Was that? Are you asking me if technology hurts its survivability? Well, no. Uh, just your opinions on 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 how that is affecting the the community from your time, you know, back in the seventies throughout today. It, it seems like it's very different in a lot of ways because of the the connectivity. Here we are on a Zoom call right now, and we're yeah. we're all in different states talking about fife and drum. I don't think any of us are in Connecticut, so <laughs> you know, and we're talking about about Connecticut quite a bit here. It's an interesting difference, it seems to me. I'm just curious about your opinions. Right. I it has. I think it's a it's a win win uh, because it's it's going to be easier. And I'll refer back to Brendan's uh, question. It's going to be easier for someone who is beginning, who wants to create a fife and drum corps. The use of technology is going to help them far better than just going in alone with a with a picture. You know, here we've got YouTube videos. We've, and you name it, if you want to hear uh, 150 of Charlie Wilcox and solos play, just spend two days on YouTube. And, and you'll hear 100 of each solo. But so technology, I think, is a win. Far more than it's a hindrance. in 74. Uh, to get people interested. Cities interested in having uh, uh, a fife and drum corps in the area. Interesting. Very cool. No, and I agree with you on that uh, 100%. I want to talk a little bit about, Mark, uh, about your collection, your drum collection. And I know that you were a friend with Pat Cooperman very early when Pat started up the Cooperman Drum Company. Um. And I also know that you may have purchased a drum from Loyal Drums very early on. So do you have I did. a drum from the Cooperman Company that is very low in number and a drum from Loyal Drums that is very low in number? I have, I have drum number five from the Cooperman Company. Jeez. I have drum number five. I have drum number five from the Loyal Drum Company. Dang! That's great. That's cool. That's good. That's really cool. That's so cool. The, the story's even better, I think. Okay. Uh, I'm going to refer back to John Moon, who's who's become a lifelong friend. Uh, hi, John, if you ever hear this. <laughs> uh, I, I had been given 
Buck Soisman's number, Ralph Ames' number, Pat Cooperman's number for fights. Pat Cooperman's number only because he refurbished drums. He was not building drums at that time. So I called Buck Soisman's, and he answers the phone, and we talked for quite a while. He told me what it would cost to have a set of drums made, uh, you know, eight snare, two bass, and uh, he says, yeah, I just had my, I think he said 95th or 98th birthday. It was, you know, so I hang up from the call and I, I said, well, I'll get back to you. Uh, and I looked at my wife and I said, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't, I don't want to send a check out to him. I think he's going to die. <laughs> and he, well, he did. Wow. He, two weeks later, he was gone. <laughs> wow, so Mark Mark went dark all of a sudden. <laughs> went dark on us, man. Mark, are I, you the Grim Reaper and we just didn't know about this all this time? <laughs> yeah. So I called Ralph Ames and, and Ralph was, was a he had very uh, uh he had very odd ideas about drum. He he says, Yeah, I can build you a drum. So he builds me this drum. And I come home from work one day and and uh, and Mary says, Well, there's your drum. Man, I couldn't believe it. Came really fast. So I, I unbox the drum. I tug it down, put on my sling, put on this drum, hit it once, took off the drum, undid the ropes, put it in the box, sealed the box. And the next day I shipped it off to Cooperman and I said, Pat, um, my name's Mark Logsdon. I'm from Detroit. I'm sitting, I've sent you this drum. I know you do refurbishing. I'll pay you, uh, charge me, whatever. Send me the bill. I do this a lot for everybody. He says, I built fives and I ordered fives right away. Um, but he's, he, he sort of mentioned the fact that he, he had been toying with the idea of making drums. So over the next six to eight weeks, maybe it was two months, I would call or he would call me and we would spend an hour on the phone. He's verbally building a drum in my ear over the phone. I've never met this man, but he's telling me about the materials. He's telling me about how the shell was going to be made. He was telling me about the hard rock maple hoops, how they were bent. The angle, the angle of the holes in the rims to keep the drum ropes from, from crimping. Like the Ames drums were drilled 90 degrees to the rim. Cut right. the rope. And then he's describing the snare strainer. It's going to be a variation of the molar strainer. Well, I didn't know what a molar strainer was. Uh, um, going back to my collection as an aside, I have the first uh, a drum from the first set of drums Gus Muller ever made. Uh, oh, um, Dang it. And that's why I'm on your good side. So anyway. <laughs> so, anyway <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I get off the phone with him. I, Talk to Mary and say, you know, I, I think this is the real deal. Well, I'm the reason Cooperman makes drums. I bought, I sent that man a check and never met him, and I don't gamble. <laughs> That's how sure I was. And so I have the first set of drums Cooperman ever made. My core is still playing them. They are the oldest set of Coopermans ever. Um, and um I have yeah. to say, they look like the day they came out of the shop. That's cool shit. Wow. That's really cool. 
Hey, Marcus. So, so, so something cool about the about the numbers as well, which I don't think that that you touched on was that. Uh, so you have number five from from Pat Koopman, um, and you have five from from Loyal Drums from 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 me as well. Um, but the thing to understand about that, and I'll is, tell you why. Yeah, I'll tell you why I did that. I, I was I'm so absolutely so pleased with the quality of the Cooperman drums that when I was told by Patsy, uh, they sort of gave me a heads up where everybody else knew, was made heir apparent. What did I do, Dave? I called you that night, and I said, what did I say? Yeah, you had the first. Listen, if the Coopermans trust you, I want the first, I want your first drum. I want it. I want whatever drum is the first one, I want it. And that's that's what I was going to get at. And thank you very much for for, for your trust with that. Um, the the first few numbers I think for Pat and for me um, were reserved for family. So the first one commercially available to anybody was number five, um, which I think was the same story for for, for Pat as well. Huh. Uh, actually, they they kept the first eighteen numbers, um, but later on they asked me if I would like to have their drum. Okay. Yeah. So I, it's cool. yeah. I have their I have their drum number five, which yeah, it, it's important for me. Not like I need another drum. I mean, I don't. For God's sake, I don't. But in fact, my my wife my wife used to say, "Why didn't you just collect thimbles? <laughs> if you wanted to collect." <laughs> so. But I needed I needed to show I needed to show whoever cared, whoever did any history, whoever did any research, that um, the first Michigan was proud uh, and, and their director Mark Logster was proud to have a, a loyal drum on the shelf and it gets played. Let me tell you, it gets played. Nice, nice. Hey, Mark, Mark, I'd like to talk about your your wife uh, Mary, and I'd like to hear. I've, I've heard stories and. Um, from various people and yourself, but I'd like to hear it from you uh, well, again about the the story of sweetness of Mary and, and uh, Middlesex County. I would love to hear that. I'll try to get through it. Um, Mary was was ill, and a, f- a friend of ours. In fact, it was a it was a uh, Jane Law was a member of uh, MCV at the time. She had been the original member, one of the original members of First Michigan. So she was with MCV, and they were recording an album. And Jim and Sarah found this um, song called The Sweetness of Mary, which on their album was dedicated to Mary Logster because she was going through some tough times. You know, ovarian cancer is not an easy thing to try to, you know. So I, I will say this of Mary. When I came in the door that one day and said, we're starting a fife and drum corps, he looked at me like, What? <laughs> and she, okay. <laughs> I mean, she was very supportive from day one. She never played an instrument, but she was the best audience a fifer or drummer could ever have. Mm. So wow. Middlesex County volunteers <clears throat> learn, uh, dedicate this song to Mary. And, and Bill Nevidal, Jane's uh, brother-in-law, uh, was in our court. And he had passed away. So they were back to the funeral. And of course, we're all up. Uh, and uh, they, they gave the CD to Mary. Jane and, and Bill Phoenix gave gave a CD to Mary with a dedication. Um, we were going to 
we we've been 39 or 40 years maybe we've been coming out to Connecticut um, I'm sorry Massachusetts for Patriots Day and um, I asked I asked Jim and Sarah could could we have a copy of that music would it be all right let's they called and said well let's make plans to play this together so Mary was very ill this is 2002 and um, uh, I had brought a video camera out. The old kind with a, with a video cassette VHS. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, somebody was filming the whole parade for us. And then past the reviewing stand in Concord, Massachusetts, Middlesex waited for us for the first Michigan. And we, we came as one core and we began playing Sweetness of Mary together, which was recorded. And we, when we ended, uh, the parade, uh, we always end with, uh, we end every parade, every concert, every performance, every recording with Harem Scarum. Uh, we know our day is done. It's a tradition. Whether there's a crowd around or not, we don't care, but we play. But in this case, we played Sweetness of Mary one last time. Um, we talked about it a little bit with MCV and First Michigan which was put on tape. And then I immediately changed clothes, grabbed the VHS tape, got to Logan airport, flew back home. And that night I played that VHS tape for Mary. Hmm. Um, uh, Whose birthday, by the way, was April 19th. So for 40 years, almost 40 years, we celebrated Mary's birthday in in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, Uh, three days later, she had passed away. Wow. I mean, so so she heard that, and her comment was, "Well, that really is a pretty pretty piece of music." So at uh, MCV, God bless them. They, the 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 dang thing has taken on a life of its own. Um, I'll tell you a story. Uh, I know for a while, and it may still be happening, but for a long time, um, uh, Colonial Williamsburg's corps corps of drums, when their seniors pass out of ranks, their last concert. They're allowed to pick the music for their last performance on the parade. And m- many, many, many of their seniors, graduating seniors, would ask for uh, Sweetness of Mary to be put in the repertoire that day. Wow. Um, I've, nice. I've heard Sweetness of Mary played by the old guard uh, at Spirit of America programs. Uh, that was a surprise to me. Well, I, I saw them in Kalamazoo, and they played that at the end of, at the, end of the program. My, and there was only two people in the audience who under, well, th- four, two of them that were playing it and myself and, and my date, um, uh, recognized these for what it is. And it's a very, it's an emotional thing. Uh, there's a, the Dutch Marines are you, are playing it now, uh, mm. on, in their presentations. Yeah. Um, it just, uh, yeah. They played Sweetness Mary and they, and they, they played Edinburgh Castle too. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. He had asked me about the backstory. So I sent him that, what I just told you guys. And it was a, you know, she, uh, I got home on the eight, on, on the 17th that year. Um, uh, her birthday was the 19th and she passed away on the 20th. So she got a chance to hear the mass corps playing it. And we still do that with the 4-H fife and drum corps when we're out there. Um, it's just a, it's, it's been a very meaningful thing. She's been gone 19 years now. Do you still have a copy of that tape? I do. I got to find it, but I do. 
Yeah. That's cool. Really is a nice story. see the, the the future of fife and drum as we're coming out of this pandemic everybody's gearing up to to to, to get back into the swing of things with with deep river um which is happening from what i understand this year is i'm on a, I, i'm on the dram committee yep are are, are, are we good is are it happening? <laughs> breaking news <laughs> hey you know so, how it is mark yeah. Um, as of right now, the, all the planning is going for a live look at what? the Deep River page. Look at the Deep Deep uh, Deep River page. Awesome. Um, um, but we're planning as though it's happening. Well, yeah. So, um, so with, with coming out of the pandemic, it kind okay. of gives us so a, a coming out of the pandemic. Part. Well, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. It's going to take, and it may take years, may take five years or more. And I hate to sound like a pessimist, but I just, in, in listening to people talk from other cores and listening in on meetings, I think it's going to take a few years for people to get comfortable again. I think it's going to, because of the pandemic, I think you're going to see um, a lessening of of core members perhaps if not the number of cores i think though that it will ultimately bounce back although it, it may take longer than i would like for it to do so i'm i'm taking a very conservative view on this based on uh, interviewing interviewing Midwest Corps and directors, members. I just, there's an uneasiness still. Uh, there's still a reluctance on some parts to um, participate again. Although we've, uh, in my core, we've done it successfully uh, by maintaining a, an extremely wide file and rank, six feet apart. But I, also on that, on that same thought, and, and going back to the Deep River muster, uh, out here, I've only got 
one parade booked for July 4th. Wow. No memorial parades. Mm. No memorial services public in the the Detroit metro area. I think we're a little bit of the opposite over here. We have Memorial Memorial Day parades booked, uh, but nothing for 4th of July. It's crazy. I think we have five events all year, Deep River included. So hoping wow. that the stuff really bounces back, but it's it's tough. You, yeah. you know, you, you speak upon it, it, it becoming difficult uh, for cores to to really get going again. Um, but we're big supporters of the year twenty twenty six on this podcast. We're really looking forward to that <laughs> uh, being the semi quincentennial. So, uh, can you speak on that? You know, what core what, what we need to do um, as as a, a community to perpetuate fife and drum. Uh, into 2026. Walk the walk, talk the talk. I mean, the blast, email blast, Zoom meetings, whatever it takes. Talk about it. Play. Um, just, uh, I mean, that's, that's, you got to keep things in the content. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I've been at, I joined the company, I was 26. I'm not 26 anymore. Look at this. I'm 72, for God's sake. Yeah. You know? I, I walk around. <laughs> I called my daughter. She's forty-one. I called my daughter. I said, "You you can't believe the number of old people walking around in the mall." And I said, and she says to me, "Dad, Dad, you're one of them." I said, "Well, I don't feel like it." <laughs> but that, that's what it's going to take. Continued, get you know, get it out there and do it. Well, you know, so- get it out there and do it. The interesting thing is we're talking a little bit about some of the core membership waning. Um, yeah, I, I, I talk to people every every single day, um, mostly, you know, people who need a drum sling or a, or a drum or parts or something, you know. But um, I'm seeing a lot of, of, of interest in, in the, the colleges and universities, you know, into this art form. So, you know, which is, isn't ideal as in... You know, it's not. I want to see all all of these elements of fife and drum really survive, but but it is growing in some areas as well. So so maybe coming out of this, it might just have to have to shift our concept of, of fife and drum. Where fife and drum belongs might be shifting a little bit as well. Uh, I'll tell you where fife and drum belongs. I, I was once accused by no one other than Bill Pace of, <laughs> and this is what he said to me. He ran up to me and he said. What makes you think? Let me give you a quick backstory. Uh, Bill found out that I was coming out with my core out east in Guilford, Connecticut, on the green in Guilford, because there was nothing happening that week that we were coming out there. So when they introduced the first Michigan Colonial Fife and Drum Corps, the people that were sitting in their lunches got up and applauded. They gave us a standing ovation <laughs> as we marched onto the field to do our part of the program. And, you know, this is what I told the kids at the time. They were all, it was a junior course. I said to the kids, I said, look, that standing ovation was out of courtesy. They appreciated the fact that we got there, regardless of how we played. But I can tell you this, the standing ovation we got after we were done, we earned because 
normally you don't see that happen at a fife and drum muster. You know, you just, you don't. And it was after that Bill Pace, I'd never knew the man. I talked to him on the phone. He called, he came over, he says, what makes you think you have the right to play this music like that? Hmm. I said, well, it's not just your music, Mr. Pace. It's ours. And I don't care if I, am I, if I'm from Michigan, which used to be part of both Connecticut and Virginia way back in the 18th century. I said, but it's part of our history. And I think we appreciate it more out here because we're 800 miles away. Mm, yeah. But, good point. Good point. You know? Um, so it's, uh, I don't know. It's, the more we talk about it, the more we play, the more we walk the walk, talk the talk. I think, um, I think we're going to be okay. Ultimately, um, as far as universities taking out, Ohio State's had a fife and drum corps forever. And mm-hmm. have you, have you heard them? Yeah. It's the only thing missing are the bugles. In fact, the only thing I think they should have. They should have a field music unit instead of a fife and drum corps. Myself. So, Mark, I don't know how many times you've done it, but you have uh, famously rid, rode your motorcycle from Michigan to Connecticut for the Deep River Muster. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, yes. Uh, six, six, seven times now, eight. Wow. That's a, that's a long way. Well, let me tell you something. There is a new fife and drum motorcycle gang and we actually have the president of the main chapter with us and brian Watson. Oh, brian Are you kidding? no they have fife and drum motorcycle gang yep the sons we of do Flammerkey. mark they're we called have... the sons of flammerkey no that's that's what they call us i have a whole song and everything it's sons of flammerkey <laughs> we are currently the um oh. based Facebook motorcycle group, and they they named us some crazy crap. Semantics, semantics, semantics. So listen, listen. Here's my real question. Send, send so, me the link. So send me the link. Sons of Flammerkey. I'm I'm asking the the main chapter president. Will you vote in Mark to be his own Michigan chapter president oh, yes. of the Sons of Flammerkey? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Okay, we'll make wow. you. A- a charter member and administrator. Yeah, the whole thing, man. And the well, reason why I wanted to bring this up is that we worked really hard on an introduction song from the last episode. I wanted to make sure yeah. we used it again. It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking about vehicles as well here, Mark, I got a funny story about, about Mark. Um, so when we were talking about, about that, that first drum from the Loyal Drum Shop, uh, he was asking about where I'm located, and I told him I'm essentially in in the landing path for a um, a regional airport. And Mark is a is a pilot. He has um, I, I guess what like a timeshare in a in a private plane, um, small small plane. And uh, so <laughs> we, we actually had the conversation about. No, I I own. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, but, um, so we actually had the conversation about, about Mark flying out to pick his drum up at the shop <laughs> from Michigan. 
I was telling him we have to strap it under the wing. <laughs> I own I own 75% of this little airplane. Uh, the 25% is owned by the flight school, which leases it from me. And right. uh, so a lot of the maintenance is taken care of. But it's a great little airplane. It's it has it. I can literally from Cairo, Michigan, look on a map. It's up in what would be the thumbnail of Michigan, and still have a half hours worth of fuel. Wow! No kidding. That's crazy. That's now, crazy. having said that, having said having said that, my bladder will only do two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, I get that. That's that's a perspective you have to respect. All right. Well, Mark, this has been great. <laughs> Carroll, Michigan. <laughs> it will fly from Carroll, Michigan to almost my yeah, Miami, Florida on 40 gallons. Wow. Uh, less than 40 gallons. And it holds it holds 40 gallons. That's awesome. But, you know, you were talking about motorcycle rides. Driving from here to Connecticut is, in fact, the, one of the quickest times I ever made. I left the house at four in the morning, and at, f- at five o'clock, my wife was still alive. I called my wife at five o'clock <laughs> and said, I'm at the Griswold Inn, and she didn't believe me. What? No way. No way. I said, here's Mrs. Cooperman. Tell her. Ask her. Wow. Because they were still living in, in Essex at the time. Uh, I don't know. So, Brian, he's alpha you right now. This oh, is, man. That, I, I could never do that. I could yeah. never leave Michigan at 4 a.m. and be at the Grizz for dinner. Mark, no. I think that you just got yourself to the top of I the was. family. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you're all, you're all up there, man. <laughs> yeah. Mark, you're our freaking hero. La Mafioso. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Oh, crap. This was fun. Yeah, this more fun Thank talk. You. This is great. <laughs> uh, Mary and I had planned a, a retirement trip on the motorcycle, and uh, she had obviously passed away in 2002. So in 2006, on June 1st of 2006, I left my house at 4 in the morning, and 87 days later, I drove back into my drive at three in the afternoon. And I had traveled around the entire edge of the continental U S. Holy crap. And I made, I I handed out business cards and told people on the back of the business card, the website, they could read the blog and, and so forth. And then I said, if, if the mood strikes, send a check to the Caramanos, uh, research hospital in Detroit, Michigan for ovarian cancer research. And I made $10,000 for ovarian cancer research. Whoa. <laughs> wow. I didn't know wow. that. Cool. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, and, and we still, we still, um, uh, on the sales of our, of our album called Sweetness of Mary, obviously enough. Um, and it basically, it's all the music that Mary always mentioned that she liked best or, and so forth. Right. music. But the, right, the, the right. cool thing is, I had opened it up. I said I would send music out to any fifer or drummer uh, who wanted to take part. So we yeah. had we had 40, 40 people maybe. And when it came time to write the credits, I I called 
I called the, the old guard office because two of them say that. So I had talked it over with, <laughs> with my family. And I said, look, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to list everybody who was there, everybody who was there, and say affiliation, not from the old guard, Fife and Drum Corps, not from the old guard, Fife and Drum Corps. 38 times, but on two of them, I wasn't going to say anything. Right. Right, right, right. That's crazy stuff, man. <laughs> Holy moly. Well, listen, Mark, this has been a fabulous discussion. We have covered a lot of ground uh, over a lot of years, and um, I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I think the people listening to this are going to dig it, too. So okay. thanks a lot. Oh, yeah, no, they will. They will. There's no doubt about it because there's a we talked about a lot of history and a lot of crazy stuff, which is um, really fun. So we're good. Well, thanks, thanks for doing it, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. great talking with you, Mark. Yep. Talk to you guys soon. Can't wait to do All it. All right, man.
If you've liked this podcast and would like to support the Bottom of the Glass, go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the Patreon link on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And thank you. Program produced by Michael Blancaflor. Edited by Brendan Mason. Hosted by Brendan Mason, Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkins. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor. Logo was done by Andrew Ruddle. Music on this podcast has been provided by the Federal City Brass Band and the Middlesex County Fife and Drum Corps from their album In America, which is available for purchase directly at their website at mcvfifesanddrums.org.